Hi, it's David Ever with the Customer Experience Advantage podcast. You know, we know that our customers have changed and how they expect to connect with us and buy from us and track everything has shifted in recent years. In large part, the shift, of course, is to digital. But what does digital transformation really look like and what does it mean? Today, I'm speaking with Howard Tierski. He's the CEO of From, the Digital Transformation Agency, and the author of Winning Digital Customers. Stay put. It's David Avern on the Customer Experience Advantage podcast, back in 20 seconds. You're listening to the Customer Experience Advantage podcast with David Avrin, featuring candid conversations with some of the most influential leaders in business today. Sit back and listen in, or feel free to watch the video version online. This is the Customer Experience Advantage podcast, and here's David Averin. Hi, it's David Averin on the Customer Experience Advantage podcast. Thanks for tuning in. The audio version, of course, available everywhere, C-Suite Network and Apple and Spotify and everything else. And of course, the video version, if you want to watch it on my, on my uh, webpage and on YouTube and everything else, so whichever way is best for you. Today's a great one. Today, we're going to talk about digital transformation. You know, we talk a lot about customer experience. How do people want to do business? What's happened during the pandemic? But but specifically digital. Howard Tierski is a real expert on this, has led some of the digital transformation for some of the biggest clients and companies in the world. He's done work with Avis Budget, NBC, JP Morgan Chase, AE, Mattel, Barnes and Noble Education, the Mall of America, Transamerica. We're going to keep going here. Airbus, just because how often do you get somebody going off on you? Denim Bradstreet, Facebook heard of them, Verizon heard of them, Spotify, Amazon, and others. He is a successful entrepreneur who's been named one of the top 10 or the 10 digital transformation influencers to follow today and by Enterprise Management 360 as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers that will change your world. And we are thrilled to have him here today. Howard, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. So listen, I would have I would have wanted to talk to you anyway, but having a new book out gives us a great timely reference for doing this. Tell us about the new book. Tell us what it covers and why, and then let's let's delve deeper into digital transformation, what we're seeing in the world, what entrepreneurs and others need to be paying attention to, and, and who's already falling behind. Yeah, sure. Well, so my book is called Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, and uh, really excited that uh, we got onto the Wall Street Journal bestseller list when we launched in January, and nice. uh, you know, I think... No, keep going. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I, I just, I, I'll throw in utterances from time to time, just, just <laughs> affirming, affirming what it is you say. Cool. Uh, so, you know, and I think part of the reason, frankly, is because the topic is just so much more critical today than it even was before. Yeah. Uh, the world is becoming more and more digitally centric. And even more than the world, our customers continue to have digital be more and more central to their lifestyles. And as that happens, of course, their needs change, their desires change, the things they want to buy change, the way they want to buy changes, the way they want to engage in customer service activities change. And those brands that are successful today are those that understand that and have either built their companies that way or have transformed their companies to align with those customer needs. And frankly, the reason part of the title of my book is The Antidote to Irrelevance is that we see a lot of companies that haven't successfully made the leap or haven't made it rapidly enough. And the field is littered with bodies right now. And uh, most brands are looking at that and saying, well, they don't wanna be the next Circuit City. They don't wanna be the next Toys R Us. They want to be the next HBO. They wanna be the next FedEx. They wanna be the next Walmart, the next New York Times. Because while we see great legacy brands 
who are failing to transform, we also see many examples that are succeeding. So we know that it's possible. And my goal in this book, because I've had just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity over the many years that I've been doing this to work with so many large brands, I've gotten a chance to see like what works and what doesn't work. Believe me, I've been a, a part of as many failures as successes. None of those brands you mentioned, of course, they were all wildly successful. And, and, you, <laughs> but, got an, um, and you got an MBA every time. Um, so, mm-hmm. but, but talk to me about digital, because for some people, digital just means, uh, do you have an app? Is, is it mobile? But you're also talking about content delivery. I mean, give me, give me the broad spectrum of what digital as an overarching category, what does it represent and how does it manifest itself in terms of um, service content and other delivery in business? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, you know, people throw around the word digital in a lot of different ways, but right. here's what I think is most important. Today, I, I would say that the customer today has become what I call a digital customer. Now, what do I mean by that? Not that they've become robots, but that they are living that lifestyle where digital is so core to how they do everything, how they work, how they learn, how they date, how they order their dinner. You know, there's rarely an activity that you're going to do in the course of a day that you're not going to be leveraging digital tools for some purpose. It's that core to the lifestyle that most people are living today. You know, as an aside, I don't know how many have seen that uh, amazing new show by, with Fran Leibowitz by, and Martin Scorsese that's on HBO. Oh, yes. Yes. Great so, show. Super funny. And Fran Leibowitz is the sort of classic New York columnist and kind of New York figure. And, you know, she in the show talks about the fact that she doesn't have a computer. She doesn't have an fo- iPhone or any kind of mobile device. You know, she types on a typewriter. She doesn't do anything digital. And so they made a whole HBO special about her. That was so interesting and unusual and unique. This is somebody that's not living the digital lifestyle. That's worthy of an entire miniseries. So it's that unusual of a situation because the vast majority of everybody else is living that lifestyle. And so uh, as a company, the most important question isn't so much what does the word digital mean as the fact that this is your customer today. This is the customer. 71% of people sleep with their phone, their, their mobile phone, their iPhone, their smartphone on the nightstand next to their bed. People look at their phones, exactly. People look at their phones hundreds of times a day, studies show. They've done fun studies where they've asked people, if you had to choose between keeping your mobile phone or giving up thing X, which would you pick? And like 50% of people would, more than 50% of people said they would work an extra day a year if they have to, to keep their phone. They'd give up vacation to keep their phone. And they would give up relationships. I saw studies exactly. along the same line. The boyfriend or girlfriend said, yeah, I'll keep the phone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So my wife, of course, I'm sure would never say that. But no, other people, of course not. <laughs> apparently yeah, but, but, a third of people. But but yeah. Howard, let me ask you a question. So if if we know how prevalent this is in our lives, what is it? What does it look like those who are lagging, those who are dragging behind? And how does that play out in terms of our preferences in the marketplace. What is somebody losing when they are um, when they are uh, behind the times, um, behind the curve, um, working to catch up to others within their space? What are they losing in that process? Sure. Well, they're losing on at the very top the most fundamental business metrics, which is revenue growth, profit, and value, valuation of a company, right? And you know, just as a few examples, I mean, look, look at Apple stock price. Over the last five years, Apple stock price is up almost 500%. Compare that to other 
you know, like for example, someone like Dell, which is less than 100% increase over a five-year period, which is not terrible, but certainly nothing like the performance you see from a stock, uh, from a company that is so well aligned with the needs of digital customers today. Look at Disney. Disney was able to launch Disney Plus because they're a brand that has very successfully aligned with digital customers' needs. And they were able to scale a streaming platform to in three months to having a comparable number of subscribers to that of Hulu and 50% as many subscribers. Oh, I'm really sorry about that. No worries. Sorry, let me unplug this phone. If you want to ask me that question again, I can. No, I just, but we just keep it going. Listen, this okay. is real life. <clears throat> I would actually be thrilled if a cat walked across your screen right now. So, okay. uh, or, 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 or a kid walked in and, and your wife grabbed him and scurried out of the room because that's. My, we don't have a cat, but my daughter, Samantha, has two guinea pigs. Would you like me to go get one? You know what? It, that would work. But, but listen, but that's part of it. Here's a quick, here's a quick aside. And, and I think it makes it relevant. It's what we're doing now right? All of the, how we're communicating as well. I mean, it's easy to look on it from a macro perspective. You can talk about Apple, you can talk about Disney, but it's also easy for smaller players and micro players within the marketplace to be dismissive and say, well, yeah. And when you've got resources like Apple or Disney, but this is pervasive across every category. It's not just how we're buying, it's how we're communicating right now. I mean, how much has COVID humanized all of us. I love when I see the, the weather caster on TV and their kid comes in and grabs their leg and they pick them up and finish the weather cast because they're doing it from home. Our world has transformed. And yet there are smaller players who think that it, it's elusive for them. Help them understand that it's not. Well, it's certainly not. Uh, I mean, look at your small, uh, small restaurant that has connected with um, you know, Grubhub or Uber Eats and has transformed their business by simply partnering with a company that can handle the ordering. And of course, they have to set up their menus and all that. But if sure. they have and put the tablets, you know, in their kitchen, so the orders come in, so they have to make some changes to their operations in order to be able to make that transformation. But it's not necessarily requiring them to totally change what they're doing. There are businesses during COVID that have nobody in their dining room and are making and selling more meals than they were during pre-COVID times Absolutely. because they've successfully connected with the digital customer. So I think that because there are so many ways to get your business aligned, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to restart your business from the ground up. But instead, ask yourself, you know, every business is providing some fundamental service, whether it's entertainment, food, footwear, whatever it may be. And those fundamental needs haven't changed, right? People needed those things 200 years ago, and I'm sure they'll need those things 200 years from now. Someone's sure. going to be selling shoes 200 years from now, and they're not going to be digital shoes, right? They're going to be real right. shoes people need to put on their feet. Uh, so, but the question is, how does the customer want to engage in that interaction today? And even more importantly, what are the points of pain in the other ways in which customers can solve that problem in their life, right? Or I mean, traditionally shoot. solve the problem, right? That we yeah. give you a problem we didn't realize we had until we had discovered a better way of doing it. Right, exactly. I mean, when I take an Uber, that is better than a traditional taxi cab service in a wide range of different ways. It's easier yeah. to find one, it's easier to pay, it's easier to make sure you know it knows where you're going. You don't have to say, yell an address through a plastic divider at a taxi cab driver and hope that he's heard you and you're not sure if he speaks English or whatnot, versus knowing that it doesn't matter if he speaks English because he's got a screen in front of him that's telling you the address and showing him where to go. And, you know, so, so many points of pain 
that were associated with a traditional taxi ride, which are solved by the Uber or Lyft or similar experience. And I think every business needs to ask themselves, where is my customer experiencing some degree of effort, pain, friction, inconvenience that I may be able to remove through uh, some aspect? It doesn't have to be digital, of course. We're talking about digital. Sure. And that is the most powerful weapon that most businesses have today. Uh, but you know, it, it can be something else. Just the constant questioning of how can I make this experience better for the customer is usually the best way to differentiate yourself, which usually leads to more customers, better word of mouth, the ability to increase your prices because customers are less price sensitive when something is differentiated in the marketplace. It really hits all the key things that lead to positive fundamental business results. Right. But let me ask you this. So during COVID, I mean, in many cases, of course, we know that this has accelerated what has long been predicted about how we're going to do business. But how much of this was pre-existing technology and it was just the urgency is what increased of, of adopting some of these and how much of it was true in, innovation that came to pass and, and was implemented during this time? It's almost all the first one because, you know, COVID happened relatively rapidly. So there was limited opportunity to really do, I mean, obviously we have innovation like the uh, vaccine, right? But even right. the vaccine, what really was it? It was a vaccine system. It was a technology for developing vaccines that had been, been worked on for a decade, which then was mildly adapted to apply to this particular virus. And then of course, most of the time it took was just testing, right? So I think that just like even what you might think was the most innovative thing really wasn't actually all that innovative only because it wasn't new. It was amazing, don't get me wrong. The vaccine is fantastic, but it wasn't new. It was right. technology that had been being developed. And similarly, I think the, that the first thing that you said, what most businesses did, those that had invested in digital transformation, those that had modern stacks and agile software development methods and you know, a flexible business model and structure were able to use that, even though they probably didn't put those things in place in anticipation of a, a pandemic. But the structure nevertheless, was there. Yes, and that enabled them to say, okay, the world is changing, there's been rapid change, how do we need to leverage what we have? The companies, and look at someone like Models or, or, or Foot Locker. These are, these are you know, fairly traditional retailers, but that had invested in outstanding digital capabilities around things like their supply chain and their distribution chain. So uh, for example, in Foot Locker's case, they had to really think differently about inventory. You know, when the stores were closed, instead of sending all the inventory to the stores to be you know, available for people walking into the stores, they had to think about online orders. Should they keep more back in the warehouses or the fulfillment centers? Some of their stores, for example, in certain geographies, the employees were permitted to go into the stores as long as customers didn't go into the stores. So that inventory could be right. sold online because an employee in a store could package it up and mail it off. Whereas other stores, the inventory was essentially locked off because the employees weren't allowed in and other stores customers could go into. So they had to be able to be flexible and say, okay, we've got different situations in different stores and different states. And how do we make the most of the inventory we've got coming in and these customers who need shoes? We want to make sure we continue to serve the customer even though the situation is changing. And so I think most of the success we saw around coronavirus was people who were leveraging pre-existing investments in technology, infrastructure, and processes, which then they were able to rapidly adapt. Well, and, and from another perspective, or uh, dovetailing on that, it was also in partnering in a synergistic way with others who already had that. I mean, I, I get my groceries delivered. I would never have done that before, but I didn't create an infrastructure. I just tapped an existing infrastructure and adopted something and used their 
structure, infrastructure. It's the same thing. My, my daughter, um, my middle daughter was at college at Northern Arizona, very deathly ill from, from COVID. It was just petrifying as a father. But I was able to get everything delivered to her every day, all day. Food, her roommates ate anyway because she couldn't smell or taste it. But, but everything there, I mean, we used to have to, I remember when we, um, we would order flowers, right? And we'd have to order by 10 a.m. if we wanted same day delivery because organizations had to decide whether or not there was sufficient demand to justify an internal delivery infrastructure, Right. What they did, what I saw during COVID, and I would love your thoughts on this, is realizing we don't have to develop that. It exists. We just need to partner with it. So even a digital transformation, or at least a digital evolution within some organizations, is just partnering with others who already have created the infrastructure to make it happen. Yeah, I think that is a huge part of a lot of the success that we see. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't require any modification on the part of that organization. Absolutely. Because that partnership very often does require that. But let me give you an example of something I was involved in. I've worked for many, many years with the Tony Robbins organization. And one of the things that Tony does, of course, is historically has huge events, often with we were doing events at like giant uh, stadiums with 15,000 people before COVID. And all of a sudden COVID hits and, you know, it's all illegal, right? And so what do you do? And what, what Tony, he was, he was, of course, a visionary and, and a tremendous business person. He switched his whole model to Zoom. And we have been now running events with more people than ever. 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people, I think, has some of the events have had or more, all using Zoom. Now, figuring out how to have a four-day, 12-hour-a-day, immersive Tony Robbins event on Zoom wasn't just about partnering with Zoom. <laughs> it right. was about, yes, knowing they had the infrastructure, he didn't have to figure out how to make that technology work, but it was also about saying, well, how do I adapt this performance and this whole process of working with people and helping change their lives to something that can work over this medium? So it was an adaptation combined with a completely different external technology. And I think that that, and just like what we said about a restaurant or a grocery store that didn't previously have Instacart, they get Instacart. They have to make some changes to make that work, but most of it, the sort of fundamental like technologies are being provided by a third party. I think for many companies, that makes a lot of sense. And especially when you need to move quickly. And then longer term, I wouldn't be surprised if some grocery stores at some point say, you know what? Instacart's making a lot of money off my grocery store, especially if it's a large grocery store, you know, uh, conglomerate, we should be moving towards our own system and not Instacart because at a certain point you start to go, I could, I could be making, I could be getting a bigger portion of these Absolutely. dollars. But if you're trying to move quickly, sometimes it's better to get the capability in place for your customer, except that someone else is going to make some of the money. And then over time decide if there's a, you want to sort of take it internal, so to speak. Right. Well, and part of that is it goes back to what you were saying about really being very clear what your customer's uh, want and what they've become accustomed to. And sometimes we become accustomed to it because through different categories, different vendors that I really like that. Why can't you do that? And of course, what our competitors do is going to drive that a lot uh, as well. Help me with this part. So the, the book itself is, is titled, um, uh, oh, I want to make sure I get this exactly right here, Winning Digital Customers, but you talk about digital transformation. Help me demystify that. Because the whole, the whole concept of transformation, I think, is daunting. Uh, I think maybe in some cases, it's almost paralyzing for smaller companies and organizations. Do we have the bandwidth to transform, right? Especially coming off a tough year where some organizations are just looking at survival. We don't have the bandwidth for transformation. Help demystify what transformation looks like within a digital world. Sure. Well, the way I look at digital transformation is 
in two, uh, two layers. The outer layer is the digital transformation of the world and your customer. As I said earlier, everybody living that lifestyle with digital at the center, there's nothing you're going to do about that. The world is changing. So when we talk about digital transformation at a company, it's very simple. It's, are you changing your business operations and your customer experience to, to keep up with the change in the world? That's it. That's what it is. Now, you're right. It can seem daunting because the first, one of the first steps of digital transformation is to get clear on where are we now? Where are we disappointing our customers? Where are there opportunities to improve? And how do we compare to our competitors and industry best practices? So getting clear on where you are and then asking the question, you know, if we were building this whole thing from scratch, if Amazon were to rebuild our company from scratch or another, you know, real digitally native company, what would it look like? What would be the optimal way for our business to operate if we had, if we had a magic wand and could change anything we wanted? And when you look at the, the distinction between where you are and where you would be optimally, it can be a dauntingly large difference. You know, oh my God, how would I ever get from here to there? And by the way, some people say, I'm going to get my resume together and I'm going to leave working for Chevron and I'm going to go work for a startup because I don't want to have to have the effort of, of, of shifting a giant battleship to something else. I'm just going to go into that world. And so that's a viable alternative for an individual career. But obviously, it's not an option for a company, right? The company right. says, well, you know, we're just a giant company. We have shareholders. We have assets. We need to either figure out how to make this company into what it needs to be to succeed or become the next Kodak, become the next blockbuster. And is it, is it giant and daunting? Yes. But it's a life or death matter. So Absolutely. it's not really because, you know, the bottom line is change is costly. Change is risky. Change is painful. Transformation is just really big change. So avoid it if you can avoid it, right? <laughs> Don't right. do it from a business perspective. You, you'd be crazy to transform if you didn't either have to or you weren't pursuing some massive upside. But the reality is, given the speed of change in the world, which was already changing rapidly before COVID in this direction and now has accelerated however many fold you want to measure that, there's really no alternative. Unless right. you're maybe one of those, unless you want to be the Fran Leibowitz of business, unless, you know, you want to be, you're a, you're a, a margarita shack on a beach in some, in Antigua, you know, and, and you're just like this little quaint place and you don't go digital, fine. 0.01% of businesses can get away with being retro, you know, but other than There's that. There's not a model you want to emulate. I mean. No, well, but it comes down to the whole idea of the, the ramifications of, of stagnation is as you put it, irrelevance. Yes. Right? It's not even just those who are not dynamic, I guess in yesteryear, you could be fine. You could be a middle player. You could today you are truly being left behind. But but let's go back to the whole idea of transformation because it is it's a lot easier to start something than to change something, right? But 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 I, we're on the same page in terms of of if you were going to start your company over again, right? Because newer players in the marketplace who have the benefit of the broad learning don't have the constraints that most other companies have. So it's easier to do that, but to go in there when you've got legacy systems and people and leases and technology and infrastructure, um, right. it is a daunting prospect, isn't it? You're absolutely right. But I want to put an asterisk on what you just said. Please. There's no question that you're right. It's easier to start something than change something. But that doesn't mean it's easier to be successful starting something new than it is to be successful changing something. Right. Because it's, you know, it can be discouraging when you're a big company and you look around and you see so much success from Google and Facebook and Netflix and Uber and all these what seem to be these pure digital companies. And you say, gosh, they have it so much easier. 
But what that doesn't reveal is the thousands or tens of thousands of failed Ubers and Netflixes and Googles and Facebooks. So, you know, you're, you're looking at the winners of a, of a, of a race for which 99% were losers. Whereas, you know, if you were a giant company 10 years ago, there's at least a 50% chance that you're still there. So the opportunity to really get to success by transforming large companies that already have substantial assets and a substantial brand equity and customers and uh, talent versus trying to start something new, I actually believe the chance, the opportunity is actually greater, although the effort is possibly, arguably greater. Uh, so in any case, that's the challenge that I focused my career on. I haven't worked with startups much. I've worked with large companies. That just happens to be the what my lot in life was. And, um, and I think they all have tremendous potential. And whenever I look at big companies, even I talk in, in my book, for example, about one of my great failures, which is I was brought into Blockbuster as a high paid, high paid consultant when they were just not too far from their peak to help them with their digital you know, future. And needless to say, I did not really earn my money there. Um, not because we didn't present a great strategy, but because we weren't able to get them to adopt it. We weren't able to get past resistance to change and actually get the organization to change. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean there weren't really smart people there and really great capabilities that, that had, they had a lot of things going for them. And I love working with big companies because there's so much you can do. Uh, you just have to be prepared to deal with certain known common challenges. And that's really what I try to do in my book is to lay out a step-by-step process for large companies and really especially focus in on some of the challenges of driving change within big companies. Right. So, but let's look at it from this perspective. Uh, when you look at, at the investment and clearly things are changing, we'll continue to do so. But you even look at, at some of the legacy companies like the Kodaks and the Blockbusters and others, <clears throat> there's always differing opinions within the organization, internal, external as to where things are going. And you got to put your money behind your best bet. And when you're going to uh, a realm that we have yet to even discover, some people make the right bet and some don't. Right. So what do you say to, to smaller companies when there's so many options and there's a lot of solutions looking for problems out there right now? Where do you prioritize? Is it just in the user experience? Is it taking cues from what you're seeing other industries doing successfully and making sure at the bare minimum that you're at least adopting those um, communication mechanisms? Yeah. Well, first of all, anytime you're engaged in innovation, you have to take a portfolio approach. Because no matter how good your process, you can never guarantee that if I, you know, it's kind of like, let's say you're the best salesperson in the world. Can you guarantee that the next person that walks into the car dealership, you will sell them a car? No. No matter, it could be the UPS guy, right? Delivering the mail. I mean, then right. you cannot guarantee that any one person, but if you're the best car salesman in the world are you, and, and 100 people come in, are you going to sell a lot more of them than the next guy? Yes, absolutely. So with innovation, you have to say, right, we need, we need to have a process, a funnel where we say, start at the top and understand what are the customer's greatest points of pain? Because I can give you a hundred examples, most great successful innovations solved a pre-existing point of customer pain. Sure. If you're not doing that, my daughter recently came home with a product she bought at five below, you know, the store five below. Yeah. So, and I think this thing was $5. And what was it? It was a Bluetooth uh, speaker for the shower with a scrub brush on. So it's sort of like a combination scrub brush and Bluetooth speaker. You know, now, haven't we all complained about the lack of, of, of <laughs> exactly. cleaning from our audio devices? 
Right. Right. There's exactly. got to be a better way. <laughs> right. Right. Stop right. the madness. Right. I'm serious. Exactly. You could just see it on Shark Tank. Absolutely. Right? Uh, so, and I have no idea what the original price point of this product was, but I'm guessing the fact that it wound up for $4.99 at five below was not the original distribution vision for this product. Right. And right. I'm guessing there are, there, it's a closeout. Right. But what problem was this designed to solve? I, I'm not familiar, and maybe there's a customer segment that I don't know that has this problem, but go. I'm guessing somebody just thought it would be cool. And these types of things rarely succeed. But when you start at the top, focusing on real points of customer dissatisfaction or pain or inconvenience, and then you create hypotheses for things that might solve that. And then, you know, we, we follow and we talk in the book about a process that's based in design thinking. We call it design mm -hmm. thinking 2.0, which is, you know, I'm sure you're from, you know, it's hypothesis testing. It's customer empathy, coming up with ideas, and then using research to test prototypes so that you're not spending all the money to bring a product to market only to discover that oh, it turns out nobody wanted it. Or turns out somebody wanted something like that, but your product is just a little too big or a little too whatever. Um, but to really figure out what's going to work and not work. So instead of trying to say, figure out what's the silver bullet and let's do that, let's understand all the points of customer pain. Let's come up with a lot of ideas. Let's test a variety of things. And then you'll figure out which ones are the winners. And when you use that kind of an iterative process, you don't wind up putting like going into a, a casino and putting a million dollars on, you know, 26 or whatever your lucky number is and just hoping the wheel lands on that number because it's probably not going to. But instead, you know, spreading your chips out and, you know, I mean, I don't recommend roulette in general. So my, my right. metaphor has probably run its course, but, you know, having a portfolio is going to make it a lot more likely for you to be successful. Yeah, no, I, I love the process. I think that's a great takeaway. Once again, we're talking to Howard Tiersky, uh, author of Winning Digital Customers. Um, that's a great process because there, we know there's so many people who think they have created the cure for cancer that tastes like chocolate. Uh, only to find out that it's a solution looking for a problem. I was I was watching TV and there's this product called Fit. It's a vegetable spray. You're supposed to spray it on your on your vegetables to make them to get them cleaner cleaner because apparently we're not cleaning them well in our sink. Mm -hmm. Not buying it, like literally or figuratively. There's a solution looking for a problem, and we see that especially there's such a mindset around innovation, which is wonderful in the long term, but the landscape is littered with the bodies metaphorically of those who uh, who had for some reason, and oftentimes it's the basic value proposition, there isn't a sufficient market. Um, and as you had referenced uh, Shark Tank, and I know that Kevin O'Leary gave you a nice uh, endorsement for the book as well, that uh, the market has to demonstrate sufficient need before other people are gonna get behind it. So let's talk, let, let's wrap up real quickly on, on the digital transformation. I appreciate your time here today. Um, give me your best crystal ball. A lot of people uh, prognosticate wrong. Uh, a lot of people put their chips in for something that doesn't happen. You've really been on the front lines of helping organizations make this digital transformation, anticipate not only the current needs, but the future needs. And we know we're not going 10 years out anymore. Now we're going two, three, four years out. Give me your crystal ball for, for two, three, four years out. What is the world going to look like? What do companies need to start doing now to prepare for this ongoing uh, transformation and adoption of technology? Well, I think the first thing I would say is um, to the degree that I've been successful at helping companies transform, it's actually never been because I could predict the future any better than anybody else. 
Um, you know, I didn't know if Second Life was going to be a, a boom or a bust, and I can't tell you whether Clubhouse is going to, you know, overtake Facebook or fizzle out and be gone in a year. I have absolutely no idea, nor do I really know which technologies are. I mean, I think we can see some trends. I think we can assume that artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to keep getting smarter. I think we can expect that 5G and broadband and uh, zero latency computing and edge computing are going to become more and more important. Things are going to continue to move more and more to the cloud. Uh, you know, more, uh, even higher percentage of people will be walking around with mobile devices everywhere around the world. I think these are easy trends to simply say, this is what's sure. happening and lacking some giant thing that changes, these things are going to continue. But honestly, I think that most of the opportunity that companies are not finding and not taking advantage of is not for lack of some technology that we're going to have a year from now that we don't have today. I think it's really, when I work with companies, it's always about understanding where those points of pain are and coming up with ideas to do a better job of solving them. And 99 times out of 100, the way that we're doing it that's new this year could have been done last year, could have been done the year before. It's not because only finally do we have a technology. So I think that, yeah, you know, it's always nice to know what the future will bring. But honestly, I think that the future is more and more of the companies that succeed are going to be those that appeal to people living a digital lifestyle and they provide a digitally elegant experience. And it's the understanding that that doesn't just mean your apps and your websites. An example I love is what Taco Bell is doing. I don't know if you've seen this, but they're starting to change their uh, quick service restaurants so that they have two drive-through windows. One, which is a traditional drive-through window where you go and you order, but the other is only for people who've already ordered on the app and have received a message that it's yep. ready. So it's obvious, right? Now you're not waiting in line behind someone asking, well, what's the difference between a tostada and a, you know, a taquito or whatever? Right. You're just picking up your food and you can get to that indigestion even faster. So you know, I think that that's a great example of adapting a business. In this case, couldn't be more bricks and mortar. They're literally having to make carve a new window out of the brick in their, in their restaurant uh, to adapt to the digital lifestyle. And I think that that, the brands that are going to be successful, those, and you know, that's simple things like order online, pick up at the curb or pick up in the store, but, you know, continue to multiply that out by things, whether that's helping people understand the fit of a garment uh, by looking at something online rather than having to go in and try it on, uh, you know, and, and on and on, right? It's, it's and, and it comes through research and the way in which we figured out what will work, what will be an innovation that will work in the marketplace is simply through tactics that involve engaging with customers and prospective customers in structured ways that give us the insight that we need, not by asking them what should we do, because they usually don't know, but by observing them and asking the right questions to gain insight into their needs. And in the book, I also go into a lot of those techniques, like how do you do that effectively? Because customer research can be done in a way that leads you to the wrong conclusions. It's like any kind of science, like I was terrible in like chemistry lab, because my stuff would always like not come to the I wasn't careful I wasn't following the right process because I was just right. so excited with the chemicals and the Bunsen burners I didn't want to measure everything so precisely you know so back then I didn't follow the right process and usually I didn't get the meaningful result and but I had a good time <laughs> picked up girls in the chemistry lab there you go but <laughs> but but um don't tell my wife but now <laughs> But now, you know, it, there are processes that will yield you a predictable, meaningful, accurate result if you follow them. And what I've tried to do in the, um, in the book is also lay out 
in great detail. And also there's all kinds of supplemental materials that come with the book too, to really help companies and individuals that are trying to figure out how can I study my customer to understand them as precisely as possible? Because that, rather than understanding some future trend is actually the most valuable way to lead to success. Talking to Howard Tierski, author of Winning Digital Customers. If people want to find the book, where do they find it? Well, you can go to winningdigitalcustomers.com and there are links to all the various Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books type pages. And you can also download the first chapter for free if you'd like to do that. Very cool. And if they want to get in touch with you and your agency, how do they do that? Sure. So uh, the uh, URL for my agency's website is from, F-R-O-M.digital. And uh, the social media where I'm most active is on LinkedIn. So you can come find me on LinkedIn and I welcome you to follow me or connect with me. I do live casts twice a week on topics related to digital transformation and always looking for more people to participate in the great discussions we have. Very cool. And I, uh, I listen into those as well. Uh, hey, thank you so much for being a part of a hangout. Hang on for a second. We'll, we'll connect on the other side of this. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Customer Experience Advantage Morning Huddle. You know, some of the most innovative solutions to your biggest customer-facing challenges are likely found within the creative minds of your own people. Let me contribute to your Morning Huddle conversation with your team. You can learn more about membership in this powerful global initiative by visiting morninghuddlemembership.com. All of my books, of course, are available on Amazon, including my brand new book uh, called The Morning Huddle. Powerful customer experience conversations to wake you up, shake you up, and win more business. Be sure to click to like this podcast. Also, subscribe to uh, Howard's podcast as well. Subscribe, leave your comments below, and click the little bell icon to receive notifications of new episodes. You can learn more about my keynote speaking and my consulting at davidaverin.com. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Customer Experience Advantage podcast. Check out past episodes. Leave a comment. Big thanks to my guest, Howard Tierski. I'm David Averin. Be good. This has been the Customer Experience Advantage Podcast with David Averin. Feel free to leave a comment and be sure to hit the thumbs up button. You can listen to past episodes and be notified of future ones by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. David's popular marketing and customer experience books are available in print as well as Kindle and audiobook and published in multiple languages around the world. You can stay connected and learn more at davidaverin.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.